you do have a Bible today, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Uh, that's where we're going to spend our time together today. Now, anytime that you take a break from a series like we're in in Malachi and you kind of drop into a passage, it's, help, it's helpful to know where we are in the context of the book. It's helpful to know where we are in Paul's train of thought as he's writing the book of Ephesians. So, chapter 1, essentially, is Paul just exploding into worship about what God has done through Jesus Christ. That the first half of chapter one is Paul letting you know that from the beginning or from eternity past, that God's plan of salvation and the way that he would reconcile the world to himself, his plan A was always through Jesus Christ. And he, and he says that we have been blessed with spiritual blessings uh, such as things like being adopted into the family of God, being sealed with the very promised Holy Spirit, and granted an inheritance that, an Im- that is imperishable. And now from there, on into the latter half of chapter one, he gets into a personal prayer for his readers uh, of the book of Ephesians. And he gets into to praying specifically for them that they would, they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. That they would be able to see what God has done both in the world and in them individually through Jesus Christ. And that really brings up to where we, or brings us to where we are in our passages today. That you can follow Paul's train of thought where he moves from kind of cosmic realities to corporate realities. And as we get into Ephesians 2 today, Paul comes for the heart. And he says, I want to, he basically says, I'm going to take a passage and I'm going to let you know what God has done in your hearts. He wants his readers to have a good, clear understanding of, of the change that has taken place in their soul. Because he knows for them and their uh, time in history and the things that they're dealing with, that this is what's going to be kind of the, the thing that they hang their hat on throughout every single day of their life moving forward. And it's especially true for us today as well. I mean, don't you think that it's important for us to constantly be washing our souls with what God has done through Jesus Christ in every single one of us? Don't we think that that, that that is important? Because I think we can all attest to the fact that when it comes to just the daily life of Christianity, the, just the kind of living out the Christian life every day in, our, in, our, in the jobs that we have, in the school assignments that we do, that once we kind of settle in, there's kind of two ends of the spectrum that we can kind of settle into when it comes to living out the Christian life. And the first is that maybe you just slip into this reality of just being constantly overwhelmed by your sin. That you just, you can't get out of this rut. That you consistently feel like the soul, like, hey, you're, a, you're born again. You would attest to the fact that Jesus is Lord. But you just feel like nothing can overcome this habitual sin that you have. The fact, that, and, and at the end of the day, you come, you, maybe you wrestle with the fact that, man, the, the sole thing that, that defines me and my identity is that I'm just, I, I'm a sinner. And I cannot break free from, the, from these chains that I know I continue to be held under each day. Now, the other side of the spectrum that you can kind of fall into and settle into is this kind of Christian self-sufficiency. That the further along, the further removed that you get, uh, the further along that you get from the time maybe that you were converted and you kind of move away and the, there isn't this con- constant washing of your soul of what God has done through Christ in your heart, that maybe you start to become a little bit cold. 
you become a little bit distant. The compassion isn't extended towards others. And, you know, there's, you become a critic instead of man of encourager. There's not a lot of grace that's being, that's being bestowed from your life. And you kind of just settle into this, you know what, the plane's on auto, autopilot. I got it. I can handle this. And maybe you sense the fact that you switch back and forth between these two just depending on which day it is. And maybe you don't consistently reside in either one, but man, one day you wake up and it's like, hey, we're good to go, I got this. You wake up the next day and like, oh my gosh, how can God forgive me with all the things that I've done, the history that I have? And as we get into Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 today, what we see is that this passage is the, is the ground leveler. That as we get to the end of verse 10 today, that, we, that, that it levels the playing field. If you've fallen off the horse on either one of these two sides of kind of the Christian life, this passage helps you get back up on the horse and on your way. So that's kind of what we're going to see as we move throughout Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 today. So let me pray for us. And then we're going to get into the text. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth and the way that it goes before us. Um, Lord, I just pray that as we look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 today, um, that we would just be humbled, that we would leave here in awe uh, of the fact that you would, um, that you would save sinners. And Lord, I just pray that, uh, I pray for everyone in the room today, that uh, hearts will be softened, that, they would be, that we would be ready uh, and willing to receive the word that you have uh, for all of us today. For it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Now, as we get into this text, you're going to see that it's, it's essentially it's broken up into two sections. Uh, you, could, you can go further and make the argument that it's kind of broken up into three sections, but for the point that we want to make today, what I want to draw your attention to is that this text is really broken into two sections. And the way that Paul structures our text today is very similar, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, it's very similar to the way he structures Romans. That in order to get to the good news that shines like the sun, he's, got to, he's going to take three verses to kind of give you the indictment of your soul. <laughs> that in order for when he gets to the good news, kind of towards the middle of this passage, he's got to let you know the bad news first. It's like any good movie with the hero at the end. The only reason that you get to the end of the movie and, you, and you're blown away by the, the hero that wins the day is because you get the first hour and a half to realize how bad the villain is. It's the same way, it's the kind of the same deal that we have here working through the book of Ephesians. So let's just keep that mindset and that framework kind of on the forefront of our mind as we move forward throughout the text today. So let's go ahead and look at verse 1. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, Paul comes out hot, one verse in. And he gives, he comes out right out the gate with a clear shot indictment of the human soul apart from the saving grace of Christ. And now, you know, what he doesn't come out and say is that, you know what, uh, you were just not that great. You, you, weren't, you were just a little bit off, and what you needed was a little turbo booster to your life that was already going pretty good in the first place. No, Paul gives a clear-cut, to-the-heart indictment of the spiritual reality that we all faced prior to, prior to the Spirit of God invading our lives. That most of us in here have stood before a coffin, 
and seen the lifeless body laying there before us. And Paul wants you to know that at one point, that's the spiritual reality that defines your life. Now, we don't like this idea. There's something about this, when you hear this, you go, eh. I, I, I kind of, I mean, I'm not perfect, but spiritually dead? That's the indictment. That's what you're telling me is the reality that exists apart from a life of Christ. And look, like, the reason that we don't, un, the reason that we don't like what Paul has to say there is because we don't view sin appropriately. I mean, the fact that we feel this like, eh, in our hearts when we read verse one is because we don't have the same uh, catastrophic view of sin that Paul did. In fact, uh, we just kind of think we're not really that bad. Sin is not really detrimental to my life. And regardless of what you might be sitting here today thinking about the, the effect that sin on your has on your life, Paul seems to think that it's pretty serious. This, I mean, this is a very vivid image reality of a spiritual life apart from Christ. Not to mention the fact that Jesus thought it was pretty serious, serious as well. I mean, Matthew 5 comes to mind where we hear uh, as a part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus say, hey, if your eye causes you to, to sin, cut it out and throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Because it would be better for you to enter into the kingdom of God without a couple limbs and your entire body be thrown into hell. So we see that Paul, he would say, hey, sin's a pretty big deal. And Jesus would say, yeah, sin's also a very big deal. So we see that just through one verse, Paul is, he's coming for us. He's saying, hey, this is the reality that once, this one, that once existed. Now, how do we get here? What contributed to this, this spiritual deadness? What brings about this lifeless spirituality in the heart's of men and women. And what Paul is going to do is we get into kind of verses two and three. He's going to give you a threefold diagnosis for the reason that this spiritual reality exists in our hearts. Now look at verse two. He says, and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Just basically, anytime you see this type of phraseology in your text, you can basically just think a worldview, a set of values, a way of making decisions that is fundamentally opposed to the things of God. One commentator actually put it this way. He said, you can read this as following the pattern that existed from the beginning of time. So what we see is that the world and the way it makes its decisions and the things that it promises to us resembles what existed in the very beginning, at the fall, is a fundamental reality that is opposed to the will of God. That says, no, I'll take my way, I'll take my decisions, I'll take my values, I'll take my thoughts, what I think is right. Actually, I'm the God of my own life. That this was the course of thinking that at one time existed in our hearts and still exists in the world today, as we'll see in a minute. And at one time, we were all in on this. This sounded great to us. This, was the, this is the path that we were on. These are the things that sounded good to us. We were, we were hook, line, and sinker. We were all in. And hey, maybe you still are. Maybe there's some voices in your life that still tend to ring a little more louder, that, you that we still tend to buy into that, are, that, are, that has the, the megaphone in our ear. There you go. Uh, and we're all guilty of that, right? In our own unique way. We still have these things that pull at our hearts. We all sense that tension in 
our hearts. The implication and what Paul says of what is true about us, we were following the course of the pattern of the world. Now, he's going to move into his second contributor or his second thought or a cause. He says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, let me illustrate this by giving you an analogy. So, maybe you had this experience as a kindergartner in first grade, but this is how, as a five and six-year-old at Jefferson Elementary, that we moved from classroom to lunchroom. Okay, so basically what you'd do anytime that as a first grader or a kindergartner that you wanted to, hey, your teacher was going to take you from classroom to lunchroom. You got to walk about 40 yards. You're not going that far. But what they all told you to do was you're going to walk hip and lip all the way to the lunchroom. And that hip and lip, just like this, you're all going to look the same. It's I'm going to keep my hands to myself. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to focus my eyes on the back of the head of the person in front of me. And we're all going to walk to the lunch line. All right, well, that's, that's how we're going to go. The teacher's leading the way. That's where we're headed. We're all following the course of the person in front of us. Now, it's a good illustration for what's going on here in this part of the text. Because we're all, at some point, we're in the lunch line. But the reality is that the teacher wasn't leading the way. That the enemy of our soul was leading the way. We were under his authority. And he was not taking us to the lunchroom. But he was taking us to the way and the path that leads to nothing but destruction. We are following the one that Peter says is our adversary that prowls around like a roaring lion just waiting for someone to devour. The one that Jesus says from the beginning has been a tempter and a deceiver. And the thing about it is that we loved it. We wanted it. We were right in that line. We said, give me all of it. And Paul says we still see this evidence all around us. We can all look out into this world and see that this is the same pattern. It's just like in our series of Ecclesiastes. Nothing's new under the sun. Same pattern repeats itself. That this course that the world is on that has existed from the beginning is still alive and well as we look out beyond the walls of the church. Now, maybe you balk a little bit at the idea of there being a cosmic uh, reality of evil. Maybe you balk a little bit at the idea of Satan and demons. Maybe you're just like, ah, yeah, okay. But what I want to offer you is that the Christian perspective actually gives you a, a more a realistic view of evil. Because let me just tell you, if the only reality behind sin and evil in the world that we see is solely the responsibility of human beings, then this world is a whole lot more hopeless than we thought it was. I don't want to remove human responsibility from sin and evil and all these things, but if that's all that's behind the stuff that we see in the world, then there is zero hope. That we, we look out into the world and we see that, no, there is something more going on here. That's why people say, man, the guy just had a demon and he had to get rid of it. Where do you think that comes from? That there is an authority that is at work in the power of the air that wants your heart. Moving on. Now, what we're going to see here and kind of as we move into, um, as we move into verse 3 is Paul, for the first time, he's going to switch his pronoun usage. He's going to go from you to you to we. And you just love that about Paul. It's what any good preacher should do is he brings himself, he puts himself in with the congregation. You just love that about Paul. That he's saying, hey, at one point, this described my life too. I'm in this with you. Verse 3, the last of the threefold description 
He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, Paul makes it very clear here that sin goes way beyond the external reality that we can see on the surface, right? Because if we're, all, if, if we're honest, a lot of times that's just solely the way that we view sin, is the anger, is the frustration, is the, is the lashing out, whatever you might want to see. But what he's crystal clear about here is that this goes so much deeper than what you just see on the surface, that our passions and our desires are at war within us, that we like the things. We all have skewed and warped desires. In fact, the desires of the body here, kind of, and then in the Greek, kind of gives more to the idea of it refer, it's referring to an act of the will. That at your very core, that you know that you desire things that are not of the things of God that we all do, that we all have these desires and these passions and these things that we know we want, that if we lay our heads down at night, we know do not fall in line with what God wants for us. And we don't like being told this either, right? We say, I mean, it's just what I like. It's not really that bad. It's, how, is it, how, are you gonna, how is it that detrimental to my soul? I mean, I'm really not in that bad a shape. But what we see from verse 1 is that apathy to our spiritual condition often arises. And then once we get to this verse in chapter 3, we often, what we continue to see is that a misunderstanding of sin is also alive and well in our hearts. We don't, we never get to the heart level of, hey, what is really going on here? And you might disagree with this. You might say, hey, you know, I hear you, but I just don't think that it's that big of an issue. And I want to just pose this question to you to kind of mine, out, mine this out just a little bit. If all the desires that you've ever had and all the things that you've ever thought about those around you were laid out on a table and everybody could see them, do you think anybody would be left that would want to be around you? Because I can testify to the fact that I would be alone because I know the desires that exist in my heart. I know the warped passions that are deep down in my soul. And we all have that. We all have those particular things. I don't know, you know, I don't know, hey, I don't know what that is for you, but even as you're sitting there now, you know what that is. There's, a, there's something or multiple things that come to your mind when you hear that. So what's the, what's the result of this? If this is what's true, if, this, if Paul is right, what's the result? What is it that should rightfully come from this indictment of our souls? Look at the last half of verse 3. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, if you haven't liked what has been said up until now, you really ain't going to like this. <laughs> that the natural implication and what we rightfully deserve of the condition of our hearts is divine judgment. It's the, it's, the natural, it's the natural result of what should happen of a warped heart that exists in all of us. If God is who he says he is, and he is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, no bad exists in him, he is fully good, then isn't, doesn't this make perfect sense? Don't you want a God that has to do something about this? I mean, in a, in, a, in a society that loves justice, we love justice, but we kind of, we want to remove the, 
you know, God's right to act out his justice. But it's the natural implication of what, it's, it's the reality of what, it's what should happen. Now, we balk at this because we are apathetic to our sin and we misunderstand it. And ultimately, when those two things are existing in our heart, we will always be apathetic to God's wrath. We'll just say, hey, not a big deal. I, I don't really think that God is, you know, I like to think of God solely as, as love. You can take the whole wrath thing as like, I mean, it's there, but I, not my God. And what I, wanna, what I want you to see is that God's wrath and his love are not mutually exclusive. But they go hand in hand like a hand in a glove. Like the last piece to the puzzle. And as long as we are apathetic to, the, to God's wrath and the fact that that's what we deserve, we'll always be apathetic to his love. We'll never fully appreciate the love of God until we fully understand our condition combined with the rightful uh, verdict of what should come down as a result of that. And as we make our transition into verse four, it'll never be as sweet to you as it should. If, if, if one through three is true, if one through three is true, is if it's true of everyone who's apart, who is separated from God at the moment, if it's true, if this is true in your heart at one point, and you balk at the fact of God's love, and you balk at the fact that you deserve judgment, then verse four, the transition that Paul is about to make will never make sense to you. It'll never be sweet to you. You'll never savor it. You'll just say, okay, it's just another line in the book. But when you understand verses one, two, three, when that begins to reach your soul level, that verse four will shine like the, like the sun into your life. Look at verse four. But God. We could, we, could, we could close it and go home. We could close it and go home. We've read it 100 times, but every single time when we just meditate on those first three verses, we get to the beginning of verse four and it just jumps off the page. Because what it says is that verse three is not the end of the story. That God got involved. That God said, I'm not going to let this be the end of the story for, my, for the creation that I love so dearly. Verse 3 will not, the book will not close at verse 3. And in the original Greek, this is what's great, is that in the construction of this entire passage, you know, some people think it's one long sentence, some people think it's like seven verses as a sentence, and then regardless of the fact of how you want to break it down, this is the first time that the main subject is introduced in the passage. Because Paul wants to make it clear who the active agent in this passage is. He wants you to be crystal clear about who is the one that is doing the action and, and the action when you get to verse 4. And it makes perfect sense in light of verse 3. It's the only logical thing that could happen. It's the only thing that makes sense at the end of verse 3. Moving on. But God what? Being rich in mercy because of the great love which, with, with which he loved us. Anytime we talk about the love of God, this is exactly what we, what we mean. That the love of God is not something that, that comes alongside my preconceived desires and passions and just pampers them. That it's not something that affirms all the desires that have ever existed in my heart. That God is not love because I think he's warm and fuzzy. God is love because he shows his undeserved grace, mercy, and love on the people who do not deserve it. That that's what we mean when we say that God is love. That's exactly, this, Ephesians 4 is at the heart of the phrase, God is love. 
Now, as we get into verse 5, Paul is going to, he's just introduced to you the main subject of the passage. Now, he's going to introduce to you three consecutive verbs that God has done in his people. Look at verse 5. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Now, what Paul is doing here all correlates, actually, it it kind of goes hand in hand with chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Now, I want you to look up with me at at those two verses, but I'm going to kind of give us a running start. I'm going to start at chapter 8, or um, verse 18, and read through verse 21 in chapter 1. So look up at verse, you can follow along at verse 18. It says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious, in, of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What Paul wants you to see here is that the resurrection realities that define Christ's life, seated at the right hand of God right now, also defines your life here and now. That in light of Christ's resurrection life right now that you have been made alive together with him. And what you begin to see is you begin to see that now we're moving into the complete opposite of the way this passage started. He even prefaces this idea by referring back to verse 1 where he says, even when we were dead, God made us alive in Christ. He wants you to start to see the, the contrast between the way it started and now the way it's going. That's what he's, he's building this he wants you to see that. And just, because just as God breathed life into Adam in the garden, God through his spirit had breathed life now into us. It's the greatest reversal in history. The people who were once dead in their spiritual reality has now been made alive together with Christ. And man, in a world of mir- oh no, sorry, in a world that balks at miracles, Christianity says they're happening every day. All across the world. They're happening every single day as we hear about and watch souls go, go from the coffin in the, or the, the body in the coffin now raised to life. That we affirm that's happening every single day. By grace, you have been saved. And just in case, just in case we thought that it had anything, that we had any role to play here, Paul says it is by God's divine grace that you have been saved. That the mercy and love uh, that God has shown to you is completely undeserved. You see, you see him continue to build this idea of the love of God. That it's by just sheer grace that we have been saved. And it only continues to get better. Verse 6, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, most of the time... We tend to think of our, um, you know, resurrection seated with Christ as a future reality. Now, that's absolutely true, that there will be a day where we will be raised physically, bodily, um, from the dead, unless Jesus comes back first, and there is a future reality, and there a future aspect to our resurrection and being united with with Christ in the heavenly realm. But Paul is using very clear present language here present tense language, that even now, 
even now, right now, sitting in the pews, that there is a reality that of, of Christ's resurrection seated at the right hand of God that it defines our lives now. And what you continue to see is that you continue to see this contrast, that Paul wants you to see that, hey, at one point, the ways of the world defined you, but now you have been raised, you have been seated in the heavenly places, that that, hey, you were once following this course, that you were on this course of life, but now, hey, you've been raised now to resurrection life. And the world used to have the last voice in, your, in life, but now you, con- you, you, uh, you consider heaven when you're making your choices. That there is a, now a heavenly reality that is now lived out in the life of the believers. And does this say, have anything to say to our Tuesday afternoon at 2.30? I mean, do you begin to see how Paul wants you to see that, listen, what used to define you is no longer true. That there is a reality now that defines you that is so far greater than what we see in verses one to three that I just need you to just sit in it for a second and contemplate the fact that there is a reality, the fact that you are already seated with Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. Is that not incredible news? Does that have anything to say to us right now. Moving on, verse 7. Why is, it, why is it that God has done this? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That, that God in his infinite wisdom thought that, hey, the, the way that I'm going to show my glory the most clearly, the most precisely is by taking dead people and making them alive. That now, in today, present reality, on into eternity, that people like me and people like you will stand in the presence of God and we will worship at the fact that we were once dead, that we had nothing to do with the fact that we are standing right where we will be standing one day. That your life right now is a testimony to the kindness of God. Like, just let that sink in for a second. Does this not add value to your life? I mean, man, if you've fallen off the side of the, whichever side of the horse that you've fallen off that we, rec- that we reference in the introduction, does this not have something to say about that? That your life right now says something about God and his kindness. I mean, man, that is unfathomable. We got a lot of middle schoolers and high schoolers in the room today. Uh, with the absence of there being no classes. And just let me, let me take a second to just address you guys as a brother in Christ of yours who is really not that much far removed from where you are in your age and stage of life. That man, you are at a point in your life right now as middle and high schoolers that you're starting to just ponder, hey man, what is, what is my life gonna look like? What am I gonna do? What are the things that are going to define me for the next 60 to 70 years? And you're starting to, you're starting to understand and see what, this, what the things of the world promise you. You're starting to see that, hey, here are the things that the world values. Here are the things that the world is telling me that I should do. And then you're starting to contemplate, is that actually what I should do? What is, what is it that I want to define me? What is it that I'm going to go on and do one day? And listen, regardless of what it is, regardless of where you go, Regardless of the things that you go on and do and the profession that you go on to, to enter into one day, please know that there's nothing better than this. There's nothing better than the fact that you, your life can have eternal significance. That no matter what you do in this life, that this is the one that will always satisfy you. That as, as you go out in the, in the, in the 
and the voice of the world continues to get louder, know that this one will always be the loudest. And this is the one that will have an eternal impact on your soul. And I just want you to know as a brother of yours that, man, just trust me on that one. (laughs) Now, in these last three verses... Uh, Paul is going to put a bow on this section, okay? And he, what he's going to do is he's going to, what he seemingly does is he picks back up in verse 5 where he left off. You can see that he, he just kind of, that by grace through, or that you've been saved by grace and he kind of moves on a, to some different thoughts and, and everything from 6 to 7. But then he picks back up his thoughts in verse 8. Verse 8 he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And now you think we, we would get it at this point, right? I mean, Paul has just wrung this idea dry in seven verses. And even just on a, a kind of on a surface level reading, you understand that like, okay, yeah, I pretty much had nothing to offer. I, that when I stand before a holy God one day, I, there's nothing I'm going to be able to say and, and, and give him in this moment. And he'd be like, yep, come on in. That, hey, Paul, listen, buddy, I got you. I got it. But he comes back to this idea and he finishes it out here in the last couple of verses. And it makes you wonder, why does he do this? Why does he come back to this idea? And I think it's because he knows that in our hearts, we're, we will always be tempted to take a little bit of the credit. That there is a part of us that wants, us that wants to be able to take credit for what, just a little bit of credit. Let me get a little bit of credit for what God has done in my heart. But God has so designed our righteousness before him, our being justified before him in a way that it totally removes human merit from the equation. And it's through, it's, it's the key words there is through faith. Because faith and the wisdom of God, he knows that by putting our faith in him that it is going to totally bring us to a place where we say, I got nothing to offer. I got nothing to offer here. If verses one through three is true, then this has got to be the way that it is. And I've got to just solely receive what Christ has done as the gift. That I look at him and I say, I'm only here. I'm only yours because of everything that he has done. That God, I brought nothing to the table. You received that as a gift. Christmas is coming up. And we're all going to get gifts. Hopefully. But in that moment, are you going to say, hey brother, thank you so much. Here's a hundred. No, you're going to receive it. You receive the gift. And God in his wisdom and his unfathomable kindness, has, he's, he's made it that way. So that at the throne of God one day, none of us will be able to say, yep, well, let me tell you about all I did during my time on earth. We're all going to stand there and say the only reason that I'm here is because of everything that he did. It will be the only way that we can stand before God one day and say, I am worthy of being here. is because he is worthy of it all. Now, doesn't this absolutely drive you crazy? Doesn't this just like, it pulls at, at, at your heart. It's just like, no, but please tell me, God, I, I got it, I get it. Grace through faith, let's go. But please give me a to-do list. Please give me something I can do. And he takes a red X and just crosses it right off and says, trust me, put your faith in me. And God, that, is, that just drives us insane because we want to know what we can do. God, give me something to do. But also, isn't this more freeing? Like, isn't, isn't this so freeing to know that, all we, that we put everything onto Christ? That we say, listen, 
He's the only way I'm worthy of being here. Because doesn't the Romans 7 reality kind of plague us uh, most of the time? That like where Paul just, he gets to a place and he says, I want to do the good things that I know that I should do, but there, I find it a law that every time I want to do good, I can't do good. I go back and forth between the reality that I just fall short continually, continually, continually. And he says, who is going to rescue me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And we all feel that. We all feel that like when we try to earn our own righteousness, we try to do these things, do these things, there's a war in our heart that says, I'm trying and I know that I continue to fail each time. Because the message of the gospel, the message of the gospel is that you don't need a little bit of self-improvement. Self-improvement and working on yourself is like trying to dig a hole in cement. Obedience is absolutely a part of the Christian message, but man, trying to earn your way to heaven is literally like trying to, earn, like trying to dig a hole in the cement. And when we realize that, when we realize that the only reason that we, uh, that this is true is that what it does is it leads to worship. Like understanding that we have nothing to offer will only lead to worship. But when we think that we've done something to earn our way there, what comes back into the center of our worship? Us. It's the way that God's designed it. It makes perfect sense that every single time that we think that we've gotten our way there, we put ourselves right back into the center of our worship. And we understand, man, there's nothing that I could have done. We explode in worship. But God. It makes perfect sense. Now, What's the therefore of a passage like this? Where do we go with this message? What, what is it that we, hey, you want the to-do list? What's the to-do list from here? What do we do as we walk out of these doors today? And I think what we see, I think we see that in verse 10. I think Paul kind of puts the bow on verses one, two, one through nine and says, hey, let me tell you what the, to, what the to-do list is. Let me tell you kind of where you go from here. And here's, Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So really, what I think the application is, as we move from here, is to meditate on these things, to ponder on these things. And even that, you're like, God, really? I thought you said I could go do something. And as we read Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, we see that we just got to sit in this reality. We have got to sit in this reality and ponder on the fact that at one point you were dead, now you're alive. At one point you were blind, now you see. At one point you were deaf, now you hear that you are now a new creation in Christ. And just sit on that reality and understand that, that at one point God breathed his spirit into you so that you might see him clearly through who he is and the way that he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That the Trinity got involved in your life. I mean, just let that sit and understand that you are a piece of work crafted by Christ himself. And some of us here just simply need to believe that, right? We're going back to what we presented in the, in the introduction that some of us just can't get out of this rut. It's just like, oh my gosh, I can't get over my sin. This is gonna define me for forever. But Paul seems to think that verses four to seven is actually what defines you. That one through three has no more say on your life. That you are, you have been raised to life. You are seated at the right, you, have been, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. That that is what defines you now. That you no longer are dead. There, you are no longer following the course of this world. That the ruler of the power of the air no longer has the say in your life. Sit in that. Rest in that. 
And on the other side, for the other side of the horse, man, some of us just need to like be reminded of that again. To be reminded of the work that took place in your heart for the first time. Go back to that time and continue to ponder on the work that God is continually doing in your heart. And let, just kind of let the walls come down a little bit. Remember what happened for the first time in your heart. And remember that God is still wanting to do something in your heart. And the second half of what, you know, what we see in this text is that additionally, uh, God wants to use you for the works that he's had planned from the beginning of time. That we believe that, man, we've been selected, like that, that God has in his infinite wisdom, that he knew who he would call his. And what comes along that is the works that he wants us to walk into, the things that he has put before us. Like God did not open our eyes so that we might just stay stagnant for the next 40 years. That man, God has uniquely gifted you in a way that he has gifted nobody else to be able to work for the sake of his name. To be able to go out and do the things, to step into the things that he's had planned for you for all of eternity. And some of us just need to believe that. And it might take us getting back on the horse and kind of letting the, letting the realities and the truths of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 kind of get us back on the horse, get us back moving forward before we can step back in or step into the things that God wants to do in our life. We talk a lot around here about taking your next step, taking your next step with Jesus. Some of your next step might simply be just to remember these things or to ponder these things for the first time. Really sit with, the, with this passage as you leave here today. Some of you, your next step might be getting back up on the horse. And for some of you, it might be saying, all right, you know what? I will understand that this reality is so true of me. That this is what has the last word in my life. That one through three, no longer true. Four through 10, absolutely true. And now let me step into the things that God has planned for me. So as we go here, let's go from here. Whatever step you're having to take today, let's take it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. Uh, Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the timeless truths of it. Uh, God, we just thank you that, uh, man, we just get to do this, that we get to gather as a body and proclaim the things that you have done in our life or maybe be remembered or reminded of those things that you have done in our life. Lord, so that we would leave here uh, in just such a state of worship that we see Paul worshiping as we see Paul worshiping all throughout this passage. So Lord, I just pray, um, I pray for the hearts that have sat here today. Uh, I just pray that, uh, man, the realities of this passage would sit with people as we leave this room. And Lord, just let this continually wash through the souls of individuals in here so that we might be able to freely step into the things that you have called us to do. So Lord, we just love you so much and we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.